the New York City Hospitality Alliance podcast, the voice of New York City hospitality operators. Any of the solutions to try and fix the problem by the industry hurts employees because it just it cuts their upward mobility and it cuts their ability to work hours. This is a political football and the repercussions are potentially devastating. This is Andrew Ridgey. You are listening to the New York City Hospitality Alliance podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with my friend, a rock star of an employment lawyer, Carolyn D. Richmond from the law firm Fox Rothschild. We are going to be covering everything from the tip credit to labor lawsuits to how businesses can try to stay in compliance with the very complex labor laws that create tons of liability for our industry. This is a conversation you do not want to miss. This podcast is supported by members of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. If you're not a member and you operate a restaurant or nightlife venue, go to thenycalliance.org. That's thenycalliance.org. You can join as a member starting for as low as a dollar a day. The more members we have, the stronger our voice is. For a dollar a day, you can help fuel an organization that's making sure your voice is heard in the halls of government. Make sure you have an organization to turn to for information, education, and support so you can run a successful hospitality business. So one of the benefits of being a member of the New York City Hospitality Alliance is we have our hospitality helpline where you can call and you can get answers to all your different questions. One of those questions that we always get is what is a restaurant or nightlife venue's responsibility concerning animals inside the venue? The health department does not allow animals inside of a restaurant or a bar or nightclub. However, and it's a big however, if it is a service animal, you are required to admit them. So members say, how am I going to know if it's a service animal? There are two questions which a restaurant or a bar are allowed to ask. First, is the animal required because of a disability? And two, what work has the animal been trained to perform? If the individual responds yes to the first question and credibly describes the services performed by the dog to alleviate some aspect of their disability, the patron and the dog must be admitted inside of the restaurant. You asked, we answered. If you have a question and you want to reach us on our hospitality helpline, you can DM us on Twitter, on Instagram, at the NYC Alliance. So we have Carolyn D. Richmond here, who is the chair of Fox Rothschild's Hospitality Practice Group. She was also, and a big congratulations to her, recently awarded the Judge Grote Prize from Cornell University's ILR School. This is a very prestigious award, and she is employment counsel to our organization, the New York City Hospitality Alliance. She represents countless restaurant nightlife operators throughout the five boroughs and really even outside of New York. She's an expert. She's got great insights, great energy. Carolyn D. Richmond of Fox Rothschild. Welcome, Carolyn. How are you? 
I'm good. How are you, Andrew? Doing well, thanks. So first, I want to talk a little bit about the labor environment in the city restaurant industry. Whenever I talk with restaurant operators, all they can talk about is the increased cost to employ people, all of the complex labor laws, the liability. So how did we get here? Well, I definitely say that the environment right now is tenuous, uh, depressing, a little scary for some. And we're at a turning point, I think, in the world of work and in business right now, given a a lot of different um, stakeholders, I'd say, that have varying interests from from the state and city who are particularly pro-employee to our current federal government, which is particularly anti-most people or organizations. And we're just at a point in time that I think there's a lot changing with the direction we go in with respect to regulation of the workplace. How did we get here is a great question. Uh, We were always a very sleepy industry. The restaurant industry was, I would still say, was heavily regulated, but it was primarily ignored for a lot of reasons. And around early 2000s, a lot of things started to change both federally and locally. Um, I'll start with the plaintiff's bar. The plaintiff's bar, who are those lawyers that tend to sue restaurants, started to have a wake-up call almost two decades ago now when they realized that going after employers for what we call single plaintiff employment discrimination cases started to become a little tiresome to them. It was a lot of work for plaintiff lawyers and not a lot of money. Um, I'm not shedding a tear for them. But they started to realize that there are these FLSA, Federal Labor Standards um, Act, regulations and state laws as well that regulate wages and compensation. And they realized by going after uh, employers for what we call class actions with wage and hour claims, the lawyers got a heck of a lot more money and it was a lot less work. Either you pay properly or you didn't. There's not a lot of – facts to determine, unlike discrimination where it's he said, she said, she said, she said, and vice versa. So the plaintiff's bar started to sue big box uh, retailers, primarily out west. And while they were minimum wage employees, claims for overtime and unpaid wages, when you put them together for 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 employees across multiple jurisdictions, that adds up. And the attorneys are typically entitled to about a third. So these big box class action wage and hour claims started to happen almost two decades ago. Another interesting factor was when you're dealing with uh, Targets or Walmarts or Costco's um, or any big box retailer, they're primarily service employees who are not unionized. So they didn't have unions out there negotiating higher rates or or protecting them in the traditional sense that a labor organization would. So it was ripe for employers to come in and file claims for unpaid overtime, as I said, rest breaks in California. And those were turning into multi-multi-million dollar claims. Around a few other things changed. There were amendments to the FLSA in 2004 that also made it easier to sue. And by 2005 to 2007, the plaintiff's bar in New York started to realize, wow, those guys out west are making a lot. What can we do? And we started to see wage and hour suits having to do with overtime and then tipping 
And those first materialized around 05 to 07. And again, the lawyers who more traditionally went after discrimination cases said not a lot of work to ask for payroll records and see if it matches time records. And that's when we started to see little by little, and then it just – it was a rolling stone and picked up a massive amount of speed. Suits started to become more regular um, in New York City against restaurant tours. And that's where we are. People keep asking if it would abate. I remember the chairman of my firm asking me, well, Carolyn, you have a great practice, but is it going to stop? Won't people fix things? Um, That's too simplistic. The laws kept changing too. We had changes in New York State in 2011 to what we call a wage order, and there were a number of amendments and changes to the FLSA, and these suits just take on a new life of their own. So, you know, that's one of the things that we hear all the time. You read in the newspaper, I guess, you know, celebrity chefs, and everyone wants to know what's going on in the restaurant industry, and you open the paper and you see this restaurant's being sued for this, this restaurant's being sued for that. Obviously, in every industry, there's going to be bad employers, but what's the deal with these restaurants being sued? Is it because they're bad employers, or is it just that the regulatory environment is so complex that it's kind of like your dad damned if you do, you damned if you don't. I, I think it's the latter. I don't think that the employers are necessarily bad. Uh, I've represented over 25 years financial services, steel mills, health care. Yeah, there's a bad seed everywhere. But primarily, I don't think people go into business to try and screw their workers. Um, it is a regulatory environment. There's a few things about hospitality and restaurants in particular that make it very ripe for lawsuits and regulatory change. They are minimum wage workers. Uh, front of house, you're actually paid less than, than the minimum wage. Employers typically take a tip credit in most states. You often have an immigrant population working back of the house positions and sometimes bus or runner positions. So you have a class of employees that I wouldn't say are ripe for being exploited, but they're not typically protected by unions. They're not typically... Um, attuned to their own rights. That's on the employee side. On the employer side, we are incredibly heavily regulated. There are a lot of wage and hour laws in place. For the restaurant industry in New York, some of our rules and regulations go back to the 1930s and have not necessarily changed with the times. And this industry is very labor-intensive, whereas automation has certainly changed a lot of other industries and really change the landscape for industry across the country, you still need people to serve. And to the extent you're still going to have sit-down service with servers, that requires people. And labor is one of the largest costs right now. So one of the things that I hear from employers all the time is that a lot of the laws they're trying to follow not only are bad for the employer, as they would say, but also bad for the employees. So they talk about this crazy 80-20 rule, which basically doesn't allow an employee to participate in a tip pool if they work more than two hours or 20 percent of their time in a non-tip capacity. So that could be working as a porter or working you know, as a prep cook or doing something other than having direct contact with the guest. Can you talk a little bit about like the 80-20 rule? Sure. Why is it so bad? Why is it problematic? And what is the liability it creates? And then finally, what can employers do, if anything, to work within the law and actually run a restaurant efficiently? 
So that's a couple of hours of conversation. <laughs> but let's take where, – where did we get here? The 80-20 rule is not a rule that we've had for decades or close to 80 or 90 years. That is something that came out of the 2011 New York State Hospitality Wage Order. In 2011, uh, 2010, 2011, they merged the hotel and restaurant wage order. One of the rules added was the so-called 80-20 rule. Originally, it was thought to mirror a federal rule, but as we've learned in recent regulation, the 80-20 rule at the federal level was never really an official or legal rule. So we are now the only ones left with this. What, what is it? Its purpose makes sense if you think about it uh, at a most basic level. The idea is to make sure employers don't take advantage of tipped employees who are paid less than the minimum wage by having them do tons of non-tipped work. Mm -hmm. So in theory, in the worst cases, you would have a uh, fast casual restaurant or a fine dining restaurant and rather than employ two or three extra porters to clean, maintain the bathrooms, do roll-ups, why not just use at the time um, $5 an hour employees? who you were taking the tip credit for. And the 80-20 rule was meant to prevent that. It was meant to say you can take the tip credit employer, but only during the hours when the employee is actually earning tips. So you can't have an employee come in from 2 to 5 and do tons of side work, take gum off the bottom of seats, shovel snow, and pay them five an hour when minimum wage at the time was 7 or $8. It got a little convoluted in New York because the wage order was not written particularly well. And when you read the wage order in full, you'll find that what the 80-20 rule is is as follows. An in order to take the tip credit and for an employee to remain in the tip pool, it has to be a food service worker as defined by statute, and they have to spend at least 80% of their time during that 24-hour period engaged in tipped work. There's a caveat which also says it can't be any more than two hours. So you have to look at your in and out times. What do you do? Just follow the employee around with a stopwatch? <laughs> and that, that's precisely the issue. You, ha you can have 30, maybe you have 10, but you can have upwards of 50 or 60 people depending on the size of a restaurant on the floor coming in at different times. And right, you're not clocking in and out for every task you do, so it's often very hard. It's easy to take a look and see that the employee came in at 3.30. We didn't start service. They didn't open their first check in the POS system until 5.45, and that's easy. You can see right there they went over the two-hour and the 20% mark, assuming the employee leaves at 10 or 11 at night. It is not a rule that has been easy to enforce nor is it easy to implement. At the federal level, for a variety of reasons, the rule is no longer in existence. But one of the other problems in New York was employers, again, who wanted to comply with the law said, fine, we'll pay them at full minimum wage, have them come in, do inventory side work, and then we'll have them clock in at the tipped rate, no harm, no foul, which makes sense. Um, New York State's rule was not written that way. It looks at the 24-hour period. So even if you are working the morning as a porter at $20 an hour, you can't come in that night and work for tips because those three or four hours spent in the morning perhaps as a porter 
goes into the calculation. So those employers are correct. Employees aren't getting the amount of hours that they want to get. It also, I guess, inhibits their growth because I think one of the things historically great about the restaurant industry is you could start as a food runner, uh, you know, a porter, a busser, and then you get an opportunity. Chef says, hey, I need you to come back here and, you know, chop these carrots or help with this inventory. And this 80-20 rule sounds like it basically prevents the employees from gaining that experience that will allow them to grow through the ranks, earn more money, get more experience, and who knows, maybe go on to open their own restaurant It's precisely the opposite of what I think those that wrote the rules intended. It is shorting people money and it's really stopping their ability to become promoted. And you're exactly right. Employers would love to tell someone you could come in and work in the morning in prep etc. And if you want to transition to front of the house or need more tips, sorry, can't come in. And so their hours go down. In order to get around the rule or to comply with the rule, whatever, however you'd like to phrase it, often employees are cut. Employers will use less food service workers on the floor, tipped employees, and have them do just more tasks, bus and run their own tables. Any of the solutions to try and fix the problem by the industry hurts employees because it just it cuts their upward mobility and it cuts their ability to work hours. So we through the Hospitality Alliance have spoken with the Department of Labor, our elected officials. Unfortunately, the wheels of government and change move very slowly, but we're continuing to fight to get this law changed so it works for both employers and employees, which leads me to another big issue uh, is the tip credit, which is something we're fighting to save. So in New York, an employer is able to pay a tipped restaurant worker $10 an hour if their tips equal or exceed the full minimum wage of $15 an hour. In practice, what ends up happening is many employees, I'm talking tens of thousands of them, are earning many multiples of the minimum wage when you add that base wage to their tips. Uh, Nonetheless, there are situations, uh, perhaps in some smaller restaurants, where an employee's tip wage and tips equal less than the $15 minimum wage. And in that case, the law requires the employer to make up the difference. And if they're not, they're breaking the law. And by all means, the Department of Labor should go and go after that business. And there's tons of plaintiff attorneys, as we were discussing before, that can go out and sue those businesses as well. Um, But I want to take a turn on this tip credit issue because you work with so many employers, both small but many large and the top restaurant groups out there, and you have an inner working and understanding of their business models, perhaps even their finances. What does eliminating the tip credit mean for these businesses? Are people just crying that the sky is falling and I'm not going to be able to afford it? Or are we really going to see fewer hours, fewer jobs, and more shuttered restaurants? I think you hit all the issues. This is a political football or a political bomb, however you want to – time bomb, whatever you want to use to describe it. And the repercussions are potentially devastating. And those who propose eliminating the tip credit think they're doing this to benefit, again, the hourly employees. They, they point to some of the nine states plus Guam, I believe, where the tip credit um, – is not permissible and say, well, the sky didn't fall in California. Well, the economics are very different. The structure of the industry in New York is particularly different. 
and the loss of the TIP credit is likely to be devastating. And, and we can see that because you had any number of employers about three or four years ago that tried to abandon TIPs. They tried to follow Union Square Hospitality Group's model and eliminate TIPs and figured, well, that'll help the equity on front and back of the house and we'll just train the diners and everything will be fine. Well, with the exception of Union Square Hospitality Group and two other price-fixed restaurants or maybe a handful where dinner is at least three or $400 ahead, everyone has eliminated um, their turn to the no tipping. Everyone has gone back to tipping. And why? Employees hate it. Employees want to earn as much money as they can. Uh, we've heard people say to us before that the mentality of a front-of-house employee is much of a gambler. Uh, they don't necessarily want the stability of 15 or $20 an hour. They want to know that they can earn $600, $700, $1,000 a night uh, in some places in the city. And upstate, it's comparable as well that you can make a very good living on tips. And this has become a tough issue. If we look at the finances, which we've done in a number of restaurants, you eliminate the tip uh, tip credit. You're now going to move uh, your half your workforce from ten dollars an hour to fifteen an hour. Customers are not going to pay that percent of an increase towards uh, a burger, and we've seen that diners will walk. The value perception. There's only so much people are willing to pay for a burger or a bowl of pasta, uh, and it and it's a it's a big problem. I mean, you know, we've spoken with restaurateurs that have ended up bringing um, tipping back. Because um, people want to do it for whatever reasons, but you're right. If the employer uh, gets pushed back from the employees, they get pushed back from their customers, uh, they kind of say, well, why am I even trying to do this? Right. It's a customer and an employee issue. I mean, I'm supposed to be one of the experts uh, on this issue, and I can't change my own behavior. It is unbelievably unsettling to get up from a table and not leave a gratuity. And we've seen that clientele could not understand that as well. It wasn't just myself that when tips were eliminated in a number of restaurants a few years ago, tips were still being left uh, because diners simply felt, I think, uncomfortable getting up and not leaving one. So maybe in a generation or a few generations, we can change the mentality. But for right now, the customer's mentality that you leave a gratuity is not changing. And again, employees walked. We saw a number of restaurateurs in Brooklyn and a, num a number of other neighborhoods that simply left and walked out of their places of employment and went back to the tipping model themselves because they just – they saw their paycheck. It was considerably less. Yeah, and I mean, listen, to be fair, not every tipped employee in every restaurant is going to be making tons of money and that's why it's really important that – the public and everyone understands that if an employee's tip wage plus tips equal less than the $15 minimum wage, the employer is required by law to make the difference. And people say, well, that doesn't always happen. And I've actually spoken with a bunch of low-wage worker organizations, and they're fighting to keep the tip credit too because what they say is if an employer is breaking the law when they're required to pay $10 an hour. They're certainly that, not going to pay 15 Exactly. The damages are just going to be that much bigger. So what they're saying is let's focus on enforcing the law 
And then we can start to look at these other issues. And the other thing that gets me really kind of riled up and a little bit crazy about this whole issue is that if we want to talk about creating a more fair and equitable work environment, what we should be talking about is allowing tips to be shared between front and back of house workers. Now, I understand the front of house tip workers may not like a portion of their tips going to the back of the house, but at the end of the day, working in a restaurant is a team. You know, if the food comes out cold or a guest doesn't like a dish, well, they may end up tipping less. And if the food comes out, it's delicious, everything's amazing with the food combined with the service, the guest is going to tip more. So there is a symbiotic relationship between front and back of the house, and that way you're able to increase the wages of the cooks who are working so hard in the kitchen. It's hot, they're on their feet, nights, weekends, holidays, you know how it goes. And They should be able to earn it. And if we're also talking about the populations in the kitchens, you have a lot of uh, immigrants um, that are really the backbone of the industry. And this is a way to bring more fairness and equity to the industry. And fairness and equity is a very hard word to use. When I studied labor economics in college, which I did, uh, one of the examples that was frequently used is look at the utility Baseball players, well, 30 years ago were making a million, a couple of million dollars a season. It's it's exponentially more than that now. But where's the utility compared to what a nurse is making or an EMT or a bus driver? It's complicated. Economics is a very complicated issue as is the theories of utility and compensation. While you may have servers here in New York that can take over $100,000 home for 20 or 30 hours, and and that happens at a fair number of places, sure, in Elmira or Rochester, Ithaca or Lake George, you're not going to have the same level, but cost of living is certainly different. But I haven't heard a server in the state yet who wants to trade the ability to make 25, 30 or more an hour wherever you're working to a set salary of 18 an hour. So why is that? So, I mean, I've heard from restaurateurs, they say if the tip credit is eliminated, I would seriously consider it eliminating tipping, basically because I need to increase my menu prices so much that I can't ask the customer to pay for those increased menu prices and continue to tip. Again, economics is incredibly complicated. And when you eliminate the tip credit, a lot goes up, not just putting back the $5 into someone's paycheck. It means an employer's paying in a lot more in health care costs. They're paying a lot more in taxes because workers taxes comp. are different. Workers' comp. In New York City in particular, where landlords are uh, really villainized and often probably uh, correctly, rent is also tied sometimes to labor costs, to gross revenue, things like that. And if gross revenue has to be artificially raised to make up for the difference in the tip credit, it looks under a lease to be an increase worthy of – Percentage percentage rent where uh, they're paying a percent of uh, their sales as rent. Right. So there's a lot of things that go up. And again, as we said – uh, we just uh, – I brought bagels. Three of us got – what did we have today? A bagel and butter and two bagels with cream cheese. That cost me $18. Um, that's about the top I want to spend. I certainly don't want to spend that for a bagel. But if we eliminate the tip credit, that's going to go up to $25, $26. And what does it mean? We know what it means. It means employees will start making their own bagels at home and – and making sandwiches and eating out less. And what happens when that occurs? We terminate. And we saw that 
during New York's brief experiment with no tipping, that a number of restaurants that eliminated tipping ended up eliminating services. They eliminated lunch because you just weren't making the money and it you couldn't afford to pay for a lunch crew when you didn't have the type of sales you had for dinner. And talking about a state like California where there's no tip credit, uh, there have been significant ramifications. Most recently I read an article in the New York Times that was talking about restaurants in San Francisco that are now basically calling themselves you know, fine casual. So think of going into a fancy restaurant and instead of having a server, you're actually going up to a counter, entering your order on a iPad screen, and then you either go pick it up or someone runs the food out to you. But then there's no servers there that were making the $35, $40 and, and an hour. Not, at these not for nothing. California is where the whole food truck movement started. You have food trucks lining up in parks. California is known for their In N Out burgers, for their hot dogs. It is a fast food driver centric state. Uh, New York's not, and certainly downstate, is not like that. We, we do have very significant differences in our dining models, as well as our state laws. So, you know, the New York City Hospitality Alliance, uh, we didn't oppose the $15 minimum wage. We understood it. A lot of our uh, members, employees were already being paid that um, or or more. Our focus really had been the tip credit. But you can't say just because you didn't fight something that it didn't have ramifications. I mean, we had uh, surveyed some of our members towards the end of, very end of 2018, and they said in 2019, as a result of a lot of these mandated increases, including, not exclusively, but including the $15 minimum wage, almost 75% of them were cutting employee hours back. Uh, About 44% or so were uh, reducing the number of employees. And it actually finally showed up in employment data. 2018 was the first year in decades where our industry was actually shedding jobs instead of growing. So you and I have argued about this for years because I've said for the last few years, that I thought the number of restaurants and employees were going down, and you had the statistics. I don't really believe much in statistics. What's the saying? The three types of lies, Mark Twain said, lies, damn lies, and statistics? Pretty much the rule. But the first 20 years of my practice as a lawyer, I could count on one hand how many Warren Act cases I had. And Warren is the statute both federally and, and state for when you have a plant closing or business closing. And did next to none. And that's through the 90s downturn. It's through the post-2007 uh, and eight Lehman Brothers downturn. I never had the amount of Warren Act cases or restaurant closures that I've had in the last few years. And we're not going to name names today, but some of the biggest operators in New York, some of the most uh, famous chefs with what arguably were very successful brands, have thrown up their hands and, and abandoned New York. Why? Because you can't afford to pay. You can't. We didn't talk about the talent drain, but we lose chefs all the time to other cities too. We we can't get the employees because who can live in New York? That's another particular problem. So it, it, it's a big issue, and I'm not surprised anymore when a well-known, previously successful restaurateur says, screw it, throws his hands or her hands up, says, I'm going to focus on my TV career. I'm going to focus on fast casual. I'm going to focus on anywhere but New York State. And that's perhaps where some of the growth, you know, that was being offset by the 
loss of full-service restaurant jobs is in the fast casual segment where a lot of full-service restaurateurs are moving to because you need a smaller real estate footprint, a lot less labor, it's much more controlled, and it's also scalable, which attracts private equity and other types of finance to be able to expand and grow. We've never had better opportunities for incredible farm-to-table salads, top-of-the-line sandwiches, and fast food has completely changed because Michelin-starred restaurateurs are saying, forget it, either they're not getting financing anymore for brick-and-mortar fine dining restaurants, but it's, as you said, it's scalable, it's less labor-intensive, you could almost have a commissary anywhere and prepare sauces and breads and... in a in a million different ways, it's a better model. But is that is that good for the dining industry? Probably not. If we move to just one segment, yeah. And don't get me wrong, I love fast casual, but there is something very special about a full service restaurant. It's the hospitality. It's the experience where you walk through the doors and you leave your kind of troubles or your life away, and you create different types of experiences. And that's also what's so special about New York City. You know, the streetscape, the culture, the different types of businesses, the quirky restaurants here, it's there. What the definition of hospitality is when you want to go out and share a meal and celebrate or enjoy. I don't really want to get online with my tray and order and have a runner or a robot deliver the food. It's it's not something that's inherently um, pleasing to the diner. You know, one last thing I want to talk about on the wage issue and economics is often, you know, you'll talk with people about. Um, You'll you'll talk with people about, well, what's the impact of the increased wages? And some people argue that they would prefer to have increased wages and fewer jobs. Um, And I could see that being an argument. You can argue it. Um, And that may be fine unless you are the person that has your hours cut back or gets laid off. It's it's kind of counterintuitive. If you're going to have higher wages and less employees – Look at why we have certain state laws. In New York, we have something called the spread of hours, which penalizes an employer for giving employees more working hours. You have to pay an extra hour of minimum wage if if one employee works more than a spread of 10 hours in a day. The reason we have that came out of the Depression, and the state wanted to lower its unemployment rates. So let's encourage employers through the slap on the wrist to hire two people for five hours a day rather than 10 hours for one person. So the logic, wage and hour law, we say, is probably the least logical area of law, period. Discrimination law makes sense. Look at people and judge people by their performance and not how they look. It, those laws make sense. Wage and hour is counterintuitive. So let's talk about that, discrimination and harassment. Um, you know, Obviously, there was so much attention to sexual harassment in the entertainment industry. But we also know this is a societal issue that's plaguing us and we need to eradicate it. But of course, it's also hit home in the restaurant industry. And that's unsurprising. We're a people business. People are eating, drinking, celebrating, working We're in small close, places. Yeah, working close quarters. Um, and I think the one thing about the restaurant industry that I've always loved, it's like people are just – real and raw and, you know, who they are. Um, But when some of the news broke about harassment within the restaurant industry, um, like what happened within the world of your clients? You know, you're having these conversations. Are you doing anti-sexual harassment training more? What are employers doing to make sure that if something occurs within the four walls of their restaurant or another activity like a tasting event they're doing, 
They were addressing these issues because, frankly, an employer, you can't be everywhere all the time. For starters, we have a PR problem. The industry takes a lot of beatings. It's easy for a lot of reasons. We are a huge employer as an industry, and it's easy to gang up on us with respect to wage an hour or hospitality. And first 10, 10 years of my practice, never had a harassment case in hospitality. It was financial services. It was health care. Uh, it was the steel mills I worked with. Every industry certainly has these problems, and there's bad actors everywhere but where is that line between being a bad actor and an abuser and just a horrible person and regular relations? And whether whether you want to call it flirting or joking around, it's a hard line to find. And it's one thing when we're sitting in a spacious office and you can put your hands out and protect your own area. It's another when you're working in 2,000 square feet with 100 people. Um, you're going to touch people. And this area is obvious. Our industry is ripe for problems because of the proximity, the number of people, the average age of employees in this industry. There's there's a lot of things that make us more ripe to see the problems. So what have employers done? I think this is an easier area to put preventative policies in than the wage an hour because, again, these policies make some sense. We've done more training. And I think training has to start from the top. Employers have always been willing to train their managers. I, I never have a problem convincing a restaurateur to you know, spend two hours or pay me for two hours of my time to train their management team. Getting the buy-in from the very top, though, has been problematic. And getting the owners and the funds and everyone to understand that this is a big deal and train from the top down – that's probably the first place you have to start. There are certainly a number of operators um, that I see coming into the training, and when they come in, that typically sends an incredible message to their staff that we take the issue seriously. Um, But when we don't have the buy-in from boards or from owners, it's more problematic. But what can an employer do? They can train. They can train their hourly staff. They should train their managers, and you train in different ways for different stakeholders and uh, levels of employees. You need to train in Spanish. You need to do more than just train for sexual harassment, though. It's and we've talked about this before. It's a lot wider. It's national origin. It's cultural differences. It's racial differences. And there are a uh, New York's a particularly amazing place to work. We are a melting pot, and every time I walk in to do a training. There's six different colors, multiple languages around the table, and people from all parts of the world. And that's great, but at the same time, it means there's a lot of cultural differences. And that's something you have to deal with, too, in understanding where people come from. Because people have different tolerance levels for behavior and conversation, often depending on their background. And that's a tough balance, and it's tough to train, but it's something that needs to be done. So let's give people some free legal advice while you're here. Um, I'm a restaurateur, Carolyn. I come to you and say, listen, I have a great restaurant. I'm opening or I'm already operating. I want to make sure that I'm doing all of these things correctly. You probably say, there's a lot. So are there a couple tips or areas that employers should look at to make sure that they are doing things properly? Sure. So let me give you a little story. I remember distinctly being on Lower Park Avenue a couple of years ago when I got a phone call that a a particularly well-known chef was going out on his own, 
And a friend said, Carolyn, can you help make sure he has no problems? I'm like, of course. Well, what can you do? I said, I'll flat rate it. And the flat rate is particularly reasonable for an employee handbook, rate of pay forms, everything we think you need to start. And I remember the conversation was, I'm not sure I could afford, I think it was $5,000, $5,000 in my budget. And I remember saying, it's nothing now. And I said, it might seem like a lot, but in a year from now when you get sued and we're talking about six or seven figures because you missed something, we're going to have a different conversation. And sure enough, 18 months later, the call came and it was over a million dollars. We got a good result, but the restaurateur certainly didn't think it was a good result. Why? Because they used old forms. They used old handbooks. They didn't understand what they needed to do. So, And I hate when that happens because it is somewhat preventable. You need to take stock and responsibility and understand that the buck stops with you. It's not with your payroll company. It's not with the outside HR consultants you use. It's not even with the lawyers. You need to understand going into a business what's affected. And we generally divide it into wage and hour compliance and everything else. And wage and hour compliance, what are my tips? Make sure that you understand when a rate of pay form has to go out and what needs to be in it. And find a system that works to make sure that every document you need signed gets signed. Because we find out that compliance with a rate of pay obligation is often less than 50% because new managers come in and out and don't get the 411 and don't understand they have to get these forms signed. Um, Payroll, you need to meet and look at your sample payrolls from your payroll company and make sure it complies with law. The biggest shock to most employers is that the payroll company doesn't get it 100% right nor is it their responsibility to make sure you're paying the right wage. And what's the violation or the liability for getting those payroll forms wrong? It's pretty substantial. So under the Wage Theft Prevention Act, there are two particular requirements under that law that have the biggest impact, that you must give out the rate of pay form at the time of hire and any time there's a change in minimum wage, which includes in New York every December when we've had an increase in the tipped minimum wage. The violation maxes out after about a month at $5,000 per employee. So $5,000 times however times many employees. It's a six-year statute of limitations. So a typical restaurant is starting out could have 250% turnover the first year. So while you may think you only have 15 people in the tip pool and have that risk, it's not. How many people did you have over the last six years? That 15 could easily go to 150 so that's 5000 per employee. And the second big area under the WTPA is a pay stub. This is an area that's probably most shocking to most employers because it's really on the payroll company, but they're not liable. The WTPA requires that the tip credit be written out on a pay stub in a very precise way. It's got to state what the tip credit is. Right now, $5, the amount of hours it was um, taken for in that particular work week, and then total it. Uh, Very few payroll companies have done this properly. And what's the violation? Again, it maxes out pretty quickly at $5,000 per employee. So most clients are looking at $10,000 per employee risk, plus attorney fees, plus interest. And if you missed anything else, like you didn't properly notify your employee in writing about the tip credit and use the magic language required by federal and state law, you lose the tip credit for every hour worked. And you lose it if you have a pool for every employee in that pool. 
and it's doubled. That's liquidated damages. So that means right now, if you screwed up anything, didn't give the proper notice to the employee, uh, that's $5 per hour. That's the difference in the tip credit doubled. So it's $10 for every hour worked going back six years. So this is how we sit down and see that the worst case damages could be millions for a small restaurant. So these laws sound crazy. It's not like there's actual wage theft uh, occurring. It's like a little minor paperwork violation. Um, So why would anyone want to be a chef or a restaurateur dealing with all of these issues? You know, you can't just be a great cook or hospitable host. It sounds like you have to be a real, not even a business person, like a compliance officer. We don't really give out – there's no set guidelines. There's not a manual for employers like from the city or state of New York saying this is what you have to do. There's multiple agencies. There's multiple rules and the penalties are draconian. And again, I've done this long enough that I get the public policy. I understand that you want to penalize if you don't pay properly. But as you said, it's the bad actors, which it could be a restaurant. It could be a car wash. It could be anyone the likelihood that they're going to follow the law um, or even pay the penalties is kind of small. So you're really – you tend to hurt the good actors, the people that want to follow the law and want to comply. So is it just that or are these technical paperwork violations coupled with real gross injustices, like real violations and they're attached I on? I think it's pretty diabolical and, and I spoke last night in Brooklyn and I explained – how I think a lot of this happened. Without naming names again, about 10 years ago in our in New York State in the Department of Labor, I think the goal was made pretty clear. We want to get rid of the tip credit and let's de- design a plan for how we're going to get the tip credit eliminated. And one of those ways was to make the hoops that operators have to jump through draconian and too impossible uh, usually to even comply with. So we got the WTPA and those damages and paperwork uh, requirements around 2011, and it becomes that much harder to comply. If you miss a single uh, form, if you don't literally check the box, boom, lose the tip credit, 10000 an employee. So I think the state was often – was quite frankly, setting up employers to say, you know what, we're going to throw our hands up and say, I don't need the tip credit uh, because these penalties are too impossible. But as we discussed, restaurants can't stay open if they don't have the tip credit. No, so they can't. people are basically in limbo dealing with all this stuff. Yes, we'll take some deep breaths, maybe a little bit of meditation, but I think we should go out, eat something, drink something, leave a nice tip support our local businesses, support workers. And I think collectively, if we work together, we can address these issues in a more thoughtful way. But simply saying we're going to eliminate the tip credit or raise this or place another burden on the shoulders of small business owners is not only irresponsible, but it's also the wrong thing to do. Yeah, if if we end it on a note, end it on compliance is incredibly important. And we should probably spend more time as an industry, as a state, Uh, as governmental bodies, less on penalizing and more on compliance and training. And if we can train people and if we can listen to people about what works and what doesn't, maybe that would uh, help things. But in the meanwhile, spend the money and get the right advice before you open a business. Carolyn D. Richmond. Don't forget the D. This is always great speaking with you. I hope you come back soon because we can have these conversations for hours and hours and really get into the weeds and all the specifics. But it was incredibly enlightening. 
Thank you, Andrew. I feel like I need to give everyone a, a free drink after listening to this. Thank you for listening to the New York City Hospitality Alliance podcast. I am your host, Andrew Ridgey. I am here with my main man, our producer, Mr. Jason Luttrell. Thank you to Carolyn D. Richmond of Fox Rothschild for the incredible conversation. If you like the show, go leave a review for us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us on social media at the NYC Alliance. For links and a summary of the show, be sure to check out our show notes. The New York City Hospitality Alliance podcast, the voice of New York City hospitality operators. Thank you.